back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But if records be checked, I think you'd probably find that I didn't really talk as much about comics last year as I normally would. Because, yes, this show, the credo is I do talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but historically, the there really was no balance to that. I talked primarily about comics, and every once in a while I would talk about the odd movie or the odd TV show or just whatever. Except in 2019, that is, where I talked about a shit ton of movies, and honestly... There's a reason for that, but uh, maybe that's a discussion we might better have another time. Suffice it to say, uh, this show is, like I say, historically sort of biased towards uh, comics, and when it comes to my comic book reading, at least lately, what I've really found myself coming back to is image comics. And I mean specifically the sort of initial offering of Image Comics, and basically the the first, uh, I should say maybe six or seven or eight or nine, basically my point is sort of a narrow sliver, basically the very dawn of Image Comics, the, 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 the start of it, that primarily has been my comic book reading lately, and the idea that I had was basically to do kind of a mega series about various and sundry image comics, like the ones that were launched by the image founders. That was the idea. So, no, I'm not going to do every single title of every single image uh, uh, comic book, or rather every single issue of every single image comic book by every single image co-founder. Number one, I, as much as I have enjoyed reading those comics, even I kind of have to acknowledge that I've got my limits, guys. There's just, only, even I can only take so much. So there's that. Uh, number two, though, perhaps more importantly, this stuff is not as easy to find on Comixology or in the case of anything to do with Jim Lee, the DC Comics app. This stuff isn't as easy to find as you might think. So I don't actually have as much to choose from as I might have wanted. So anyway, that maybe is going to give a little bit too much away in terms of the stuff that I intend to cover in this series. But at least to start with, I did want to go through uh, a couple of issues of Jim Lee's Wildcats. And the reason for that is because... This, this is one of those comic books that I actually intended to follow back when I was younger and these, these comics were first coming out. And in the end, I really wasn't able to do it. And as with everything that I do, apparently, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, number one, uh, guys, let's not, let's not bury the lead here, okay? I was, uh, when these comics were coming out, I was 11, 12, 13, and so on years old. And so, when you're that young, you've basically got a very small budget to put together your comic book collection, right? And 
I don't know how things work for kids these days. Shit, I don't even know if kids even read comics anymore. So, but I don't know how things work for kids these days. You know, what with the advent of torrents and all that stuff, the amount of stuff that they can fucking steal. Maybe budgeting for this stuff is just less of a concern for them. I wouldn't know. But, at least for me, I only had a, a, a pretty limited budget, I would say. A pretty small budget. And the great majority of that had to go toward the Superman titles. Now, this is going to be sacrilege to some people, and I, I guess I apologize for that. But the, the critique that I had of Superman comics back in those days, it's like their greatest strength, for me at least, was also their greatest drawback, specifically the triangle uh, number. You couldn't simply read action comics in a vacuum. You had to follow Action Comics, Superman, The Adventures of Superman, and Superman the Man of Steel in order to get the whole picture. And then as now, I just sort of fucking had problems with that. I mean, a crossover is one thing, like this big multi-part epic. Maybe that, something like Time and Time Again. Maybe that does need to branch out into all the Superman titles. You know, I, I, I can see that. But just the ongoing story that would unfold from one issue to the next, you really couldn't follow even that without collecting all four fucking titles. And again, the problem that I had with that is limited budget. I had a hard time, just from a logistical standpoint, affording all four of those uh, comics. And then, so there's that number one. But then number two, it also becomes not just it's a financial challenge, it's also a logistical challenge. How how often can you make it to the comic book store? Or how often can you make it to the gas station? Or just fucking wherever it is that you, you get your comics? How often can you really make it there to get your stuff? And at least for me, the answer is not as often as I would have liked. All right. So there were financial obstacles that had to be overcome. There were logistical obstacles that had to be overcome, so on and so on, right? And so my point in saying all of this is that Superman, without question, that was the priority. For me, that was where <clears throat> my fanboy dollars needed to go. And other things kind of needed to take a back seat. I mean, you get them if you can, when you can, but one must prioritize and the prioritization that I made was Superman. And to tie this all back to what is supposed to be the purpose of this episode, as it relates to Wildcats, this was always something that I wanted to make a priority out of. But there were other considerations, one of which obviously is Superman. So there's that. The other thing is, I guess to use Wizard Comics parlance, Everything image was hot. And so what that meant was sky high value. You're not going to get any bargains on any of these books. And being as print was the only way to get any of these books. This was another challenge. And then there were other challenges and more and more and more. And it was, at least for me, when these comics were coming out, it was next door neighbors with completely fucking impossible to follow image comics to the degree that I would have wanted to. I was able to kind of follow Spawn, but even that took some serious effort, some serious planning, 
and honestly, no small amount of luck on my part. So I had that working against me. But as far as Wildcats is concerned, at least in my local area, like I don't know how this works for anybody else, but at least in my local area, for whatever reason, anything that had Jim Lee's name attached to it instantly commanded a just that extra little bit higher cover price than anything else. It was that extra little bit harder to uh, harder to find. It was that extra little bit more rare. You know, just basically what I'm trying to say is the odds were stacked against me in virtually every single conceivable way. So when I when I sit here now to tell you guys that I really wasn't able to do very much more than uh, flip through the the occasional wildcats issue, like if some like if some friend uh, brought uh, an issue of wildcats to school or something like that, I really wasn't able to do very much more than you know read it, flip through it, you know, kind of you know oh, uh, enjoy the art and all that, but not really, not really too much more besides that, and so. That's just the way that things worked out for me. So I'd actually be kind of interested, though. Anyone who's listening to this right now, when you were that age, when these comics were coming out, what was your success rate like? Uh, did you did you have better luck in collecting this stuff than I did, or or what? Because I got to tell you, it's it was a it, like I say, it was just pretty fucking big challenge for me. So, so there's that. And, um, you know what? There's probably a lot more I can say about all of this kind of setting the table type stuff, but you know what? For right now, let's just go ahead and get into, uh, get into the issue. This is Wildcats volume one, number one cover date is August of 1992 publisher technically is Wildstorm Productions. Yeah, it's got the image logo on it, but that's just the comic book company who I guess sent this book to the printers. The actual the actual publisher, like the actual studio, is actually Wildstorm Productions. So anyway, cover artists are Jim Lee and Scott Williams. Writers are Jim Lee and Brandon Choi. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Colorist is Joe Rosas. Letterer is Michael Heisler. Editor is Ruth Grice. Executive editor is Jim Lee. Story is entitled Resurrection Day. Story synopsis, and this gets a little bit complicated at points, but story synopsis is as follows. July 29th, 1980. Scientists from the U.S. research station Zebra discover the remains of a Russian satellite that had crash-landed in the Arctic. From the wreckage, Adriana Teshkova, now known as Void, appears, and she speaks wildly about something called the Orb, and then disappears into the time stream. August the 9th, 1992. At the International Operations, aka I.O., at the International Operations Crisis Control Center in McLean, Virginia, Director John Lynch monitors an explosion taking place in Georgetown. His assistant, Frank Colby, suggests to him that the explosion may have been caused by two rogue uh, covert action teams. Void appears in the middle of the room and just as quickly teleports away again. There's some continuity administrivia that's going on here, which I'll spare you, or at least for now. 
I'll spare you. So that was August the 9th, 1992. August the 8th, 1990, two years and one day earlier, a group of New York street thugs decide to beat up on a homeless man named Jacob Marlowe. Marlowe reflexively emits a blast of energy, a power that he had forgotten he even possessed. Void teleports to the scene from the time stream and informs Marlowe that he is in fact an alien named Lord Imp from the planet Carib. She tells him that he is meant for a greater destiny and decides to help him on his road to recovery. Back to August the 8th, 1992, two years later, Jacob Marlowe is the CEO of Halo Incorporated, a multi-billion dollar company. Not only that, but he is the leader of a team of alien-human hybrid agents known as the Wildcats. The Wildcats are Marlowe himself, Void, Spartan, Maul, and Warblade. Void informs Marlowe that they must stop the demonite Cabal from initiating Project Reunification. To this end, they must find a gifted one with the power of sight before the Cabal does. Later that same day, we find Hellspawn we find Hellspont, leader of the Cabal, and his agents Pike, Providence, Hestia, and Devon. Hellspont discovers that a Cabal lackey named Alberto Cassini has betrayed them by selling information on the location of the Gifted One to an information broker known as the Gnome. Hellspont has Pike kill Cassini by smashing his face into a bowl of spaghetti. Death by Spaghetti what a way to go. The following day, Marlowe and Void go to visit the gnome in Iran. The gnome, uh, the gnome gives Marlowe the location of the gifted one in exchange for an unconditional and undisclosed promise that Marlowe swears to honor. After receiving the information, the Wildcats fly off to Georgetown, Virginia. Meanwhile, the adventurer known as Grifter and his mentor, the Coda warrior Zealot, likewise track down the location of the gifted one. Grifter goes inside a, a strip club called The Hot Spot, wherein he finds Priscilla Kitane, a.k.a. Voodoo, dancing on stage. He's about to approach her when he recognizes the Coda assassin Devon, as well as two demonite agents entering the room. Voodoo has the uncanny ability to see demonites in their true form, because they are shapeshifters. Grifter springs into action and begins fighting the demonite agents. The Wildcats emerge on the scene and lend Grifter some assistance. Zealot likewise arrives and finishes off the last of the Demonites. The Coda assassin Devon, refusing to go down quietly, de uh, detonates a large explosive that destroys the entire nightclub. Which, for those of you paying attention to continuity, this is the self-same explosion that was, that was witnessed in the I.O. Control Center in McLean, Virginia at the beginning of this issue. But Lynch isn't the only one monitoring the affair. From his submersible, uh, the behemoth, uh, Hellspont watches the explosion with his cabal agent, Belial. Belial is actually a mole impersonating Vice President Dan Quayle. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, like I say, this is a... This is one of the one of several, in fact, uh, image comics that I wanted to follow and collect, and in fact would have followed and collected if circumstances had worked out differently. 
but work out differently, they did not. So this was something I actually ended up having to wait and read and just kind of pour over in greater detail in my adult life. So I did somewhat miss out on the fun of this, but one of the things that I do want to say pretty much right from the top, and this addresses the, the cover of this issue, and by the way, guys, I picked up this issue from uh, Comixology. You can actually find these these uh, a lot of these Wildcats issues on Comixology, and I might add, for just about what their cover price was back in 1992, which I find very interesting, or close. I don't think it's actually quite, but it's actually very close to what their cover price was back in 1992, and for some reason that just amuses me to no end. But uh, speaking directly to this cover, guys, I must say this is... This is just a really well done cover. I mean, we do need to emphasize the fact that comics are a visual medium and people can say whatever they want about the Image Comics co-founders, the initial offerings of Image Comics and all that stuff. But one thing you cannot deny is that these artists, you know, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson, etc., they all knew very well and they understood very well what they were up to and what they are they, they were up to was not just creating comics but specifically creating eye-catching comics uh, attractive comics so as it goes for this color uh, this cover you know what you see going on here is a very it's a lot of uh, idealized human forms spartan is kind of center on the cover and he's just got this uh, not quite as massive, we must say, as the character Maul, but he's he's broad-shouldered, he's massive, he's got that that kind of athletic-looking uh, athletic sort of V-cut to his body. He's he looks he, he's powerful and he's imposing-looking, and he's flanked by uh, these other characters who, except for Marlowe, arguably, are all basically idealizations of the human form. There's Zealot standing behind Spartan, and she's wielding what looks like a katana sword. Actually, when they're that long, I don't know if they're actually called katana sword. Well, whatever. It's a fucking sword of some kind, whatever you want to call it. And um, maybe it's enough to say that she, too, is an idealization of the female form, and maybe enough said on that. So, so on and so on, right? And same thing with Void, you know, and possibly big mammalian protuberances kind of shuffled away there in the background. You know, lots of bright colors, and it looks like there's shit blowing up in the background on the cover. Uh, and the thing that I kind of like about this is that, with some exceptions, every single character on the cover, almost, is somewhat doing their thing. You know, their sort of signature thing. You know, whatever it is that makes them unique, to the team, they're doing it. So you've got Grifter, and he's uh, carrying what looks like two semi-automatic pistols. Uh, again, you've got Zealot. She's got some kind of a sword, katana or what. Uh, you've got uh, Spartan. He's got the glowy hand of doom going on there. There's a Warblade. Uh, his looks like his index finger is a sword in its own right. And then... Uh, you know, you can't really say quite as much for Maul, Void, and Voodoo. They're just kind of there. 
But then at the very bottom right of the cover, you've got Marlowe. He's, he, he's just got this kind of smug expression on his face. He's smoking a cigar. And uh, I don't know. It's just, this is almost everybody who's associated with the team doing their thing. You know, their signature thing. Not quite everybody, like I say, but almost everybody. And I just think this is, especially for a first issue of your comic, this is pretty much what you need to be doing, you know? Um, this Again, this is a visual medium. These characters need to be beautiful. They need to be attractive. They, they need to, it needs to look like they not only can do some really cool stuff, are doing some really cool stuff. And... All of that is very much apparent on this this cover. This is a this a cover for the first issue of Wildcats. This is I remember. In fact, I was in uh, the seventh grade, and somebody I don't I don't remember why kids used to do this, but I do remember that they used to do it. They would sometimes bring their comic books to school, and quite apart from the fact that I just have rarely ever felt com ever felt comfortable doing that. Like back when I was in school, I just don't remember. I don't, I mean, it's just, look, I grew up at a, in a time and in a place when co collecting comics and being open about it, guys, this was no way to win friends and influence people. And so I kind of admired the, the balls of somebody who would bring their comics to school I mean, well, I, I, I assumed it was balls. It may have just been that they were stupid. I mean, I don't know. Is it bravery or is it stupidity? I mean, I don't know. But this could, at least in my experience, make you a target. This isn't something that you necessarily want to advertise, you know? And so, anyways. But I remember there was this... Uh, I, I remember seeing Wildcats number 1 was in... A, a few different kids at school had this issue. And so... I want to say, I probably shouldn't say the name of this teacher, but I was in a, a, like a specific, basically you could say it's study hall in the seventh grade. And this was just one of those days at school where there's just nothing going on. All right. There's nothing happening. There's nothing going on. And so everyone in class, as long as you're not being too obvious about it, you know, you're not making it the teacher's problem. She's going to let you fuck around a little bit, you know? And so this one kid whipped out, he had this binder uh, full of uh, comics, right? And he had these kind of, um, I don't, you don't really see him around all that much anymore, but at least back in the 90s, you, you, you'd see shit like this all the time. These, these sort of loose leaf sleeves, plastic sleeves into which you could put your comics and put them inside your binder, and then now you've got them in this sort of portable format, right? And so, it, you know, you could keep them in pretty decent condition and carry many of them with you all at once. And one of the ones that he had in his little binder was Wildcats number one, and I definitely was interested in that. I really wanted to see it and uh, check it out. And one of the things that people tend not to acknowledge about these well actually you know what we'll get into i guess the meat and potatoes of this issue later but for right now it was really the cover that jumped out at me because again you know you ha you've got all the members of the team they're on the cover and they're all doing 
mostly they're all doing something that tells you something about who they are and what they're all about. And again, the 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 superhero poses that they're in, uh, you know, the bright colors. This is just a really attractive, very eye-catching cover. So anyway, and that definitely grabbed my attention when I was in study hall that one day. Now, I wasn't able to actually finish the comic in study hall because, like I was saying, like I started saying just a second ago, one of the things that people tend not to acknowledge about uh, image in these early days is just how verbose some of these issues actually were. And the reason for that is because a lot of, uh, a lot of the uh, image uh, creators, a lot of the founders, they were mostly not, they were mostly not writers by trade. I mean, Todd McFarlane had a little bit of experience writing, and I think Eric Larson might have had a little bit of experience writing, but all in all, they were pretty new to writing. And one of the jokes about comic book artists who switch over to become comic book writers is they tend to be way too verbose, right? There, there are too many um, thought balloons on every single page. There's too much dialogue on every single page. And it takes them a while to figure out how to say more by saying less. Because again, this is a visual medium. It is part. It's very important that the art be up to scratch and that it look as good as it possibly can. And when it comes to that, I have nary a word of criticism when it comes to Image's early offerings. But from a writing standpoint, obviously I'm not going to be the first person to sit here and say that these stories might not be told as efficiently as they could have been. But especially in hindsight, you know, this is one of those things where if, like, I don't remember Todd McFarlane getting a whole lot of grief over his writing on adjectiveless Spider-Man. I mean, there were people out there saying that, yeah, you know, he needs a lot of work, but he wasn't catching too much grief about it. Whereas Todd McFarlane, the writer of Spawn, caught a fucking shit ton of grief. And one of the things that I can't help thinking is that if the Image co-founders had, if they'd cut their teeth writing at Marvel or DC or basically anybody other than themselves, I think the public might have gone easier on them. But the fact that they there was this big hullabaloo of all of them leaving Marvel and then starting up their own company, it's like they were not... It's like the critics and the fans and whatnot weren't necessarily willing to give the Image co-founders the same level of indulgence when it comes to learning how to write that they would have on, say, X-Men or Spider-Man or whatever other characters that, that these artists have been drawing. And it's just, it, it it's always struck me as really weird, you know, because I, 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 maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, I honestly do not believe that Jim Lee, for example, would have gotten as much grief for his writing if he'd learned how to write on adjectiveless X-Men as opposed to Wildcats, you know? In life, we, you know, there's really no way to know what would have happened. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, this is total speculation on my part, but I just got this sneaking suspicion that 
there's some alternate universe out there somewhere where all of the Image co-founders learned how to write at least kind of well before leaving Marvel, and the Image comics that they produced were far better received, even though they're probably not substantially different from what we what we have right now. So, I'm, I don't know. But anyway, uh, to get into the, the actual issue here, because I've been sitting here running my mouth for, like, uh, what, 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 what's it been now? Like, looks like I'm closing in on half an hour before I've even started talking about page one of this thing. Actually, you know what? I'm going to make you guys wait just a little bit longer. I'm getting a little bit thirsty. And so now I want some orange vanilla Coca-Cola. Just a sec. I'm also getting uh, some vapor here, too, in case that wasn't obvious. And another sip. All right. So, from a technical standpoint, just to kind of talk about the writing for just a minute, which, again... I don't think is the most salient issue when it comes to Image Comics, especially in the beginning. But just to kind of talk about, you know, the writing for just a minute, there's a school of thought out there that says the first page of your first issue really needs to grab the reader by the balls. You need to do something that instantly not only captures their attention, you need to do something, you also need to do something that tells them something and then kind of demands that they continue reading. So it's fair to ask, how well does Jim Lee do that on page one of Wildcats number one? So let's talk about that. You've got these egghead scientists, they're wandering around in Antarctica, and the the first little caption here says, July the 29th, 1980, right? This comic book came out in 1992. So let's work through this. How interesting is it to, to readers, like 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old readers in 1992 that this takes place in Antarctica back in the 80s? Honestly, flip a coin on that. But one of the things that this does start getting into right away is intrigue. Um, the, the, the scientist, the only one who really gets a name here, uh, this is uh, McCoy. He says, meteorite crater? Don't believe everything those I.O. spooks tell you. It's a wreckage from a Soviet space station. Okay, so right there we're getting into, you know, secret government agencies and some intrigue, you know, lying to the public and all this stuff. And this is something that I think, you know, kids in, in the early 90s really responded well to. You get that in the second fucking panel. So instantly this is something that, quite apart from the fact that this is, you know, Jim Lee art, which is kind of... That almost sells itself in 1992. Right there, you're you're getting into story elements that readers in the early 90s responded positively to. So, and then from there, you get some more intrigue. We see Void, which not by she's not named Void, but obviously we find out later that's who this is. Void. She's talking about some kind of mysterious orb. It's extremely powerful. You need to turn it over to her. And then she vanishes into thin air, leaving everyone to ask, what the fuck did I just see? 
So all in all, that's actually not a bad way to start to 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 start the issue. And so then from there, and honestly, like as I guess from like a critical standpoint, this is something that we could kind of critique because within the first three pages, we do like three different uh, hops uh, through time here. Page one is in 1980. Uh, page two, this is in, this takes place in 1992, and then page three, this takes place uh, in 1990. Oh, actually, shit! What am I saying? Uh, within it, it, there's actually another jump through time a little bit further on. So, yeah, I guess from a technical standpoint, you know, you could kind of critique the amount of time hops that 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 get made here, but at least as a starting point, I'm I, at least for me that is one. Hell of a way to start the first issue of of your brand new comic book. So, anyway, so getting into page two now, this swings forward into the future. Basically, this takes place August the 9th, 1992. And the kind of interesting thing about this is this is actually the ending of the story before we actually get to the ending of this story or at least the ending of the issue. And so there's a sense in which this this page actually sort of belongs, I guess, between the first and the second issues. And on the reread, this is this does actually kind of add a little bit of texture and nuance in that goings on with Void and where she appears from one minute to the other it's enough for somebody who knows absolutely nothing about Wildcats to, I don't know so much about question, you know, Void's allegiance so much as question her methods, you know, and I guess maybe to a very limited degree, perhaps question her, her real agenda in all of this. And this is kind of an interesting little wrinkle to throw in, given the, given the fact that, let's face it, Image Comics, and specifically of this vintage, they really do live up to the name. It really is the the I guess the guiding philosophy for the Image founders is that comic books are a visual medium, and so on that basis, look if you can create a good story, that's fine. Something that you know is really gripping and engaging, that's fine. But over and above everything, the visuals really do need to take center stage. And so there's a sense in which what we're really here to do is, it, it, it seems almost reductive to say it, and I don't, certainly don't, I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but what we're really here to do is just enjoy the, the art, enjoy the visual, just the visual feast that we're getting here on just about every page. I don't think I don't think it's accurate to say every single page, but just about every page. And that that really is the, you know, sort of the ultimate guiding philosophy that's that's happening here. Now, again, having said all of that, it is kind of interesting that there is still some intrigue a bit about about void now ultimately it is kind of a dramatic i don't want to say a dead end you know there is an explanation for why void is doing what she's doing but in the moment you don't really know that in the moment it looks it almost looks like she's again not shifting her allegiance so much as 
raising the question of what is she really up to? What is really going on here? So, anyway. Plus, it just makes this issue a lot more interesting on the reread. So, anyway. So, moving on from there, getting into page three and then going forward, we we basically get... Uh, this is a little bit more business with Marlowe. And... Basically, what the story needs to do is introduce him, play him up as uh, down on his luck, and then set him up uh, down on his luck in the past, and then in the modern day of 1992, set him up as the leader of the team. And so what we get here, this again flashes backwards, this time to 1990, August the 8th, 1990, and we catch up with Marlowe. He's laying in this really just scummy-looking alley. And, again, the, the guiding issue with a lot of Image Comics, and you might say especially Wildcats, is the visuals, the art, the color, all that stuff. But that doesn't mean there's not good writing to be found here. And a good example of, of what I'm talking about, uh, the... The, the captioning, what it, in reference to Marlowe, what it says is, the Great Society failed him in the 1960s. The Me Generation ignored him in the 1970s. The Reaganomic yuppies persecuted him in the 1980s. As the new millennium approaches, Jacob Marlowe remembers little of his past and sees little hope for his future. The only escape from the hopelessness of reality is to sleep in a country built on dreams. And if if ever there was a, a kind of damning and scathing indictment of the way American society treats the homeless and the downtrodden, maybe there is something out there that's worse than this, but I can't think of anything that's more succinct than this. This has got to be fewer than 100 words, and yet that pretty much nails it, you know? Uh, this is... This is an ongoing, one might say, intergenerational failure on the part of American society and how badly we've let down some of the most vulnerable in society. And uh, all in all, I just really like it. Now, this being an image comic book, you know it's just a matter of time until a fight breaks out. And I do think it's kind of telling, actually, that we get to... This is uh, page 7 of the first issue of an early 90s image comic book drawn, no less, by Jim Lee. And, well, actually, you know what? No, this isn't actually page seven, is it? No. Well, actually, this is page five, so my apologies. Uh, page five, uh, before we really start getting any kind of uh, a fight. And honestly, it's not even really much of a fight. It's basically uh, Marlowe getting kicked around by some bullies and then Void comes to the rescue, but it's not too much of a pitched battle because let's face it, there's no way a bunch of bullies are going to be able to stand up to Void. That's just, that's just how it is. So I do kind of like this moment. I wish they would number these pages because what I'm having to do is rely on the comicsology numbering. And the reason that's kind of a problem is because comicsology, it lists page one as the cover and then page two as the issue's credits. Page one is page three. Page two is page four, etc. So it's kind of annoying, actually. But this there there is this 
A uh, neat little moment. This is uh, page six. It's kind of this glory shot of uh, Void. And we've gotten sort of glimpses of her throughout this issue up to this point, obviously. But this is our first really good look at her. And it if it wasn't clear before, it should be now. She's not really completely human. And anyway, the other kind of interesting little wrinkle here is that she doesn't she doesn't address Jacob Marlowe as Jacob Marlowe. She addresses him as Lord Imp, one of the four lords of power, the champion of mankind. And she's basically here to give a bunch of mystic, um, uh, mystical gobbledygook kind of, kind of speech where she says, The Cabal has once more ascended to power on this world and threatens humanity. The powers that be have sent me to prepare you for the coming war. Take my hand, Marlowe, you shall suffer no more. Trust me, your life shall never... And she just kind of carries on from there. And all in all, this is a, a pretty interesting way to open up uh, this, this title. These are the inaugural six pages that basically set everything else up that happens in this issue and indeed this title. These are the issues that set all of that up. And again... Is this the grading, uh, or rather, the greatest writing ever? Well, no. But this idea that there's nothing redeemable about the writing in these comics is simply not true. This is not toilet paper with a staple in it, guys. This is... Is this like... If you're into Neil Gaiman, is this a Neil Gaiman comic? Well, no, obviously not. But it does get the job done, the writing does. I'll, I'll say that much for it. So from there, we get, uh, this is basically introduced, the next several pages really are basically introducing us uh, first and foremost to Marlowe's new reality. It truly is a rags to riches story. He goes from being a homeless bum, sleeping on the streets, somebody that nobody cares about, to being a multi-billionaire. And from there, we bridge into an introduction to the team. There's a void. And we actually get a little bit of business going on here with Void. There's a lot of exposition that needs to be eh, exposited here. Uh, she she basically says, and this is on uh, th this is on uh, page nine. Uh, she says, "I am locked in Mortal Combat with a mysterious." She's talking about her dream. I'm locked in in Mortal Combat with a mysterious man who covets an orb of great power. I believe this orb is a conduit for a kind of cosmic energy beyond our wildest imaginings. So, <clears throat> you know how in comic book movies the object of basically all of them is to save the glowy thing or retrieve the glowy thing or destroy the, glow the glowy thing or, or for that matter, hide the glow... But basically whatever it is they're doing with the glowy thing of doom, that's pretty much the... Yeah, I guess the MacGuffin for a lot of comic book movies. And I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Wildcats pioneered that, but here's a relatively early example of the heroes have to capture the glowy thing because if they don't, it's curtains. You hear me? Curtains. It's going to be curtains if they don't. And so on and so forth. So anyway, um, and then from there, we actually start 
bridging into an actual introduction to the team. And it's actually, I I would say it's actually done pretty efficiently. We get a little bit of business with Void goings on with her, the dream that she's, the, the recurring dream that she's having, the objective of something at least to do with the orb, the glowy thing of the glowy MacGuffin of this comic. And then from there, we start actually meeting the team members we get, and this is on. This is a, a, a two-page. It's not a splash, but it's a two-page spread. Page eleven. Uh, Void, Wildcat, uh, uh, Maul, Warblade, and obviously we're going to get to Grifter and Zealot soon enough. But at least we get these guys. And one of the things that actually becomes sort of clear here is that Marlo is the leader of this team. Now he's not necessarily super powered, or he doesn't. Or, Basically, I guess what I'm saying is I, I wouldn't imagine that his self-assigned mandate involves going into the field at least all that often. But he is still the leader of the team. He's a member of the team. He's the leader of the team. And everything about, about uh, Spartan uh, suggests that he should be the leader, except he's not. Marlo's the leader. And so what does that make? What exactly does that make Spartan? He's like the lieutenant or something. So I guess if you want to use a sports analogy, Marlo is the coach of the football team, while Spartan is the captain of the football team. So Marlo basically decides what and where, while I assume it would be Spartan who decides how. And maybe to a degree even when, and possibly even who. So they're basically handling different aspects of managing the team. And it's not again, it's not like Jim Lee invented this concept, but at the same time I don't think this is exactly an overused thing in comics. I mean, obviously the there are a lot of vis, or some visual similarities between Spartan and Cyclops and I guess to some degree or another, Marlowe and Professor X. But I think maybe the similarities kind of sort of end there. Uh, at least the X-Men comics that I've read, Professor X isn't really a leader. He, I mean, he might occasionally say, hey, uh, X-Men team, I need you to go here to do this, so get get a move on. But generally, at least in the X-Men comics I've read, Professor X is sort of like a mutant diplomat. And he's the guy that's basically the front man for uh, uh, he's the front man for the team, and and Cyclops he's actually the guy that figures out battle tactics, strategy, how to get in, how to get out, how to do whatever it is that they're doing. And so again, I can't sit here and tell you that Jim Lee created this dynamic, but I dare not exaggerate in saying that I at least don't think that this whole head coach team captain sort of thing. I don't exactly think that's an overused thing in a lot of comics. So anyway, so from there, we we get into some business going on, uh, goings on with uh, the Demonites. This is on uh, page 12, and we, we get kind of a look at who the villains of the piece are going to be. In particular, the lead villain, at least for the immediate storyline that we're working through right now, Hellspont, 
And there are very few supervillains out there that can best be described as constantly having their heads on fire. And yet, Hellspot looks like he constantly has his head on fire. And so everything about Hellspot, whether it's, again, the head on fire thing, uh, the big flowing cape, uh, the glowing fist of doom, everything about this is just so visually interesting and somewhat different from a lot of comic book baddies, I would say especially in the early 90s. And so, again, the issue here is not necessarily originality. I don't need this to be original. What I need is for this comic to be cool. And this comic is cool. I got to tell you, you know, cool art, cool ideas, cool battles, cool everything. Now, it's like anything in life, guys. Nothing's ever perfect. And so a good example of what I'm talking about, is, this is on page 13. You have this semi-glory shot of Hellspont. He's gripping his cape. He's wagging one of his fists in the air. And he's kind of having some kind of scenery munching uh, bad guy dialogue, you know, unfortunately, Cassini's death is of little consolation. The damage is done. We must find, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, but what we see, though, is Jim Lee stacking panels to the left. And I've harped on this in a few episodes of my show where I'm in, where I try not to make a big deal out of it, but just from the standpoint of laying out your comic book page, it is kind of a no-no to stack panels on the left. You're really not supposed to do that most of the time. Most of the time. And what we see here on page, uh, this is uh, page 13, Jim Lee is stacking panels to the left. Except this time, I actually think it kind of works. I'm not just saying this because I like this issue, and in fact, I like this title. I like Jim Lee as an artist. I'm not saying it for those reasons. I'm saying it because I really do think it works. The Basically, the top, I should say, three quarters of the page, this this is, you could say, pan, uh, this is panels one through four. Panel four is by far prominent, but what makes this work is that panels one, two, and three, they're stacked on top of each other to the left, and then they organically lead downward. And so this is one of the few times, yes, this is a no-no. You're not supposed to do this usually, but this time it mostly works. You know, I don't know if this is necessarily as perfect as it might be, but it works. So this time I'll allow it. And what a way to go. I mean, it basically looks like uh, Cassini gets strang or not strang I guess smothered. He gets smothered in, in his own plate of spaghetti. And I mean, what a fucking weird way to die. You know, you get smothered in your own plate of spaghetti. You know, I mean, are there are there worse ways to die than that? Yeah, I guess maybe like drowning an elephant shit or something like that. I, that's a worse way to die, okay? No question. It's like at the same, just what a weird way to die. Like something that's supposed to sustain you, you're now being smothered with. Like you eat food to survive and now you're being, in effect, strangled with it. I mean, it's just fucked up. So, anyway, I, they, you know what? Maybe this is only interesting to me. I, I don't know. But, uh, anyway. So, moving right along here, getting, this is a, a, a two-page spread, uh, page, well, I guess really it's page 15 and 16. 
I mean, at this point, it's kind of hard to keep track because, again, the comicsology numbering here, it's all kind of relative. You know, what is a two-page spread in this context? So, but however you want to look at it, it basically takes place inside the strip club, if that helps you narrow it down. And this is maybe more of a rant about the comicsology app than it is anything else. A, a two-page spread like this, you can just turn the, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, comic book horizontal so that you can read this thing proper can't fucking really do that with comiXology because if i turn my ipad uh su such that it stretches horizontally oh what do you know this is actually okay yep there it goes it just fucking flipped over so now i can't read it again so i turn it back upright now, so that it's uh, it's vertical again. Now it flips back horizontal. I turn the thing horizontal. Now it flips back vertical. It's f fucking annoying. And I get it. You know, I mean, when you're designing a comic book reading app, you know, how can you possibly predict some of the weird, goofy layouts that every single comic book artist all throughout fucking history might lay out a comic book page? How can you possibly do that? And I get that, but it's like at the same time, a rotate feature would work fucking wonders right now. So as it is, it's kind of hard to summarize what's going on on this page. But it's like at the same time, how much of that do you actually really need? Because it's taking place in a, in a strip club. You've got Grifter. He's he's looking for the gifted, uh, the, the uh, gifted one. And so, you know, you, you can almost follow like the great majority of this story what's happening on this page just by looking at the art and ask yourself guys i mean how many comics can you really say that about you know so anyways uh so you've got grifter he's in he, he's in the strip club he's basically looking for uh the he's looking for the gifted one and of course, you know, it's just a matter of time until a gunfight breaks out. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. And then uh, the Wildcats team, they actually come to the rescue. And this actually provides what has been up to this point kind of a talky issue. This actually provides a mu some much needed action because ultimately, again, not to be reductive, but that is ultimately what we're here for. You know, we are here for the action and the and the fist fights, the explosions, the narrow escapes and all that fun stuff and that's ultimately what this is really all about. And so sure enough, the the team comes swinging in and again, I don't my memory of Wildcats is that this is not exactly the norm, but Marlo is coming along for the ride this time and I don't think that's an ongoing fixture of this title. I think in issues and storylines still to come, he takes a little bit less of an active role in the field and he tends to stay home more often. That's my memory. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I remember it. We'll, we'll see if I'm right. But one, the reason that, that this works for me is quite apart from the fact that this is just a fun, dynamic and engaging gunfight. It starts off relatively small with an attempted kidnapping. The demonites are attempted to uh, kidnap the stripper. Uh, then Grifter intervenes and he tries re rescuing her. So now it's a little bit more of a uh, of a battle. It's it's a limited battle, but it's a little bit more of a battle now. And then the the uh, 
The Wildcats team shows up, and now this is just a full-blown fucking battlefield now. This thing, this strip club is a war zone. And it really plays into this, this notion of Wildcats as G.I. Joe with capes and uh, spandex and superpowers and all that stuff. It's basically superpowered G.I. Joe is, is what we're talking about here. And that, that's just, I don't know. It, it's really well done is the point. I dig that. Uh, the, all of this action. I mean, there's, there's an argument that this is really Jim Lee in his native habitat. You know, yeah, he can, I guess, draw uh, a page of people just talking to each other about as well as anyone else, I guess. But where Jim Lee, I think, really shines is with uh, action and with fights and with uh, these gigantic set pieces and rockets coming out of the Batmobile and all that stuff. You know, that's really Jim Lee playing more to his own strengths as an artist, I think. And again, it almost sounds like you're being reductive whenever you say that. I don't mean it like that. I'm saying that every artist, or at least most artists, they have they have strengths. They have certain things that they do really, really well. You know, um, Jack Kirby, he knew how to carry action across a page. And I don't necessarily mean like an action set piece. I mean, uh, continuity of movement not only across from the top of one page to the bottom of the page, but going on to the next page. It's actually not as easy to do that as you might think. You know, continuity uh, of movement from one page to the next and keeping the action straight, it's not as easy to do that as you might think. I'm not exactly the world's biggest Jack Kirby fan for a lot of reasons, but one of the things I have to give him credit for is he's really good at the technical stuff like that. So... Anyway, so the fight ends uh, the way that it needs to end. There's uh, that pretty uh, pretty much takes us to. I don't even. I don't actually know what what the page number is for this, but the last page it ends in this big explosive explosion of explosive explosiveness, and one of the things that becomes apparent here is that. There are actually, in case it wasn't clear before, there are actually three factions that are going on here, right? There are three, ultimately three organizations, depending on how you look at it, three organizations that are embroiled in the the franchise of this issue, and certainly going forward. Three separate organizations. You've got the Demonites, those are the bad guys. You've got the Wildcats, those are the good guys. And then you've got I.O. Again, International Operations, I.O. And they're sort of, they're basically the shadowy government agency that's trying to keep a lid on the existence of both sides. And so, again, that's not exactly breaking new, breaking new ground in comics. This is not the first comic book to experiment with something like that. But it's like at the same time, I think it's actually done really, really well, and it it raises the question of what exactly is the Wildcats' relationship with Io? Like, what is it, if any? And so, all in all, there are a lot of reasons. Like, if this is the first issue of Wildcats that you ever read, as it was for millions of kids back in the early 90s, if this is the first issue of Wildcats you've ever read, 
I think you've got a fucking shit ton of reasons now to come back for issue two and not only get more awesome Jim Lee art, get more action and more fighting at fightiness and explosions and narrow escapes and gunfights and all that stuff. Now there are some story-based reasons to come back as well. So, I mean, again, th this is not comic books as dense, layered, textured and nuanced literature. But there's still some meat on the bone here for people who want to pick that apart and just kind of savor that stuff while getting lots and lots of superhero action and excitement, you know? And that, to me, is what the early offering of Image was all about. And I think it's actually done fucking ridiculously well here. So, all in all, you can be sure I'm going to be coming back to uh, Wildcats. Uh, in fact, it's actually going to be next week that I come back to Wildcats. I'm going to be talking about Wildcats number two in this series that it's entitled These Seven Men Are Disrupting the Comic Book Industry. Next up on the docket, like I say, is going to be Wildcats number two. And I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, 
You can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Magnus here. Here at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I sometimes release episodes all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to the themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis on each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, and listen for yourself about why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville, only at TwoTrueFreaks.com. <laughs>